If you brought your Bible open to the very end of Revelation, last book in the Bible, last two chapters, we're going to start with verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be as people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and the liars... Their place will be in the fiery fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down, out of heaven from God, and it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then from chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. So that's the the beautiful, glorious ending to our Bible story that we've been looking at this year. Listen, the best way to understand Revelation is to understand that it provides a fitting end to the story of the Bible. Have you ever paid good money 
to go see a movie in the theater, spent even more money on all the concessions, and go through the two hours of the movie only to have it ruined by a lousy ending, an ending that doesn't fit with the rest of the storyline. Well, the best way to understand Revelation and these last two chapters is uh, to understand them as a proper ending, a fitting ending to the storyline of the Bible. And it ends with God's new creation. So you're going to hear me throughout the sermon, even in your sermon notes, you'll see that new creation, God's new creation. Um, So the best way to see the story of the Bible is that that God is, is faithfully moving his creation, all of history, towards this new creation. And another way to think about that new creation is using probably the more familiar term, heaven. Heaven. What do you think about heaven? Uh, The truest way to think about it is with this picture from Revelation 21, 22. What I would like to do is give you three promises of the new creation that, um, that you can believe as Revelation 21 and 22 uh, provide a fitting end to the storyline of the Bible. And the first promise is this, uh, creation is renewed. These points that I'm going through may be new to you, may be uh, familiar thoughts and ideas to you, And for those of you where these are familiar thoughts, um, I'm hoping that maybe there'll be some new or fresh thing that you see this morning as we go through these last two chapters. So first promise is creation is renewed. Uh, In order to really understand this ending, we have to know that it's this fulfillment of God's promises that we've seen throughout the storyline of the Bible. The promise of a land, a land that will never be taken away from God's people, a permanent land. So Revelation 21 and 22 offer the fulfillment of God's promise of a land to Abraham. You know, Abraham inherited a land, but it wasn't a permanent home for him as his grandson Jacob promised that land as well. Ultimately, in in, in Jacob's children and family uh, had to be evacuated from that land where they were dwelling because of the, the great drought that, that forced them off of the land. It wasn't, it wasn't a permanent home. Revelation 21 and 22 is the fulfillment of the promise made to the Israelites of a land flowing with milk and honey that they never would permanently possess. These last two chapters... Uh, are the fulfillment of the promise made throughout the Old Testament by the prophets. For example, Isaiah. Isaiah gives us these, these words of comfort uh, to, to God's people, the Israelites, as they are exiled um, in other nations. Isaiah uh, writes, uh, chapter 55, verse 12, you will go out in joy. He's talking about when the, the, the Israelites will be freed from their captivity. You will go out in joy. You will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's one of the many promises of the prophets of a land. See, this this promise 
that we just read never was fulfilled for the Israelites as they were led out of captivity. The promise wasn't fulfilled to them. That promise is a promise of a land with mountains and hills and fields and trees, real land. So when John writes of a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation, his his vision that he received in chapters 21 and 22, he means a land, a new heavens and a new earth that we read at the beginning of chapter 21 is is a way of saying it's a new creation, a new heavens, new earth. It's, It's bookends for us saying everything, everything is being made new. It's a new creation. Now think of some of the other things that we may have read in Revelation as you read that book. Um, Revelation describes the ultimate and the final battle between God and Satan. And uh, one of the things that we... Uh, which actually makes Christianity distinct over other world religions, is this battle between good and evil. It is it is incredibly one-sided, isn't it? It's an incredibly one-sided battle. Satan doesn't even get a sliver of victory. Other other world religions present the battle between good and evil and, and maybe a little more equally uh, in, in strength. Uh, but not in this battle between God and Satan. Satan doesn't even get a sliver of victory. Satan would have liked to have think, well, if I go down, at least I'm going to go down swinging, and I'm going to strike enough blows that God will at least have to scrap this creation of his like into a giant dumpster and start all over again. And, and God doesn't even give Satan that that little shred of a victory. And I want you to notice something that many Bible teachers have pointed out this promise of uh, restoration of creation. And it's this, God's promise is not to make all new things, but to make all things new. the, The new creation is glorious in its newness, but not because God says, you know what, I'm going to just make a bunch of all new things that no one has ever even thought of before. And, and let's just go all spiritual, for example. Uh, no more physical matter, no more bodies, no more buildings, no more bays or beaches. Let's just come up with an entirely new concept. God doesn't do that. That would, that would give Satan that little shred of victory. Instead, God is able to um, honor this creation that we enjoy now, that he created good and in his pleasure seizes good, except he makes it new with this, just this new glory where God says, I'm going to wipe away every tear, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more decay, no more breakdowns. I'm going to give you this land, but it's, it's made new, it's renewed. And it'll be that true home that you've always longed for in your hearts. We long for a home that will not disappoint us, that will last. This is what Revelation describes at the very end. It's a new land, new home, promise of a new creation. 
Second um, point is this. God's people are united with God in this new creation. There will be a new union with God like we have never experienced before. Now, what do I mean? Well, look at verse 2 of chapter 21. Verse 2 offers this, this amazing vision. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And the more that I've read this, this verse, um, I've thought, doesn't it seem like John is kind of mixing his metaphors? I mean, he talks about a, a city in this vision. He sees a city, but then he describes a city as a bride. And so we might think, okay, it's a dazzling city that John is seeing in this vision. He's coming, with, coming up with this radiant image for us, a bride on her wedding day, to describe this the city. And thinking of a city, you might think of the streets of gold and jewels and pearls, all these images that are somewhat common when used to think of heaven or describe heaven. You've you've thought of those images before or heard those images, streets of gold and pearls and jewels. But then verses 9 and 10 focus more closely on what this city really is we see a better way of thinking of the city. Um, So we're about to look at verses 9 and 10, and I want you to think, what is the real question here? Do we think of the city in terms of what the city is or who the city is? So here's verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now let me ask you, when the Bible mentions the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ, what is the Bible referring to? It's not a what, it's a who. It's his church. It's us. That's the city. We're the city. The church is the city. The church is the bride of the Lamb, which is Revelation's great image of Jesus Christ. So let's take a step back and observe this picture. John sees this image of the new creation. And it's not that, in this image, it's not that the people are seeing this city with the streets of gold and the pearls and the jewels coming down so that they can start walking the streets of gold. I mean, there very well may be streets of gold, but that's not what this descending city is. This image, we're, we are this city that's descending. Who's waiting for the city to descend? It's Christ waiting for his bride to come down to where he is. The picture is Christ on earth. This new creation, seeing his bride, his church coming down, this radiant bride coming down to him. See, the story of the Bible is concerned with God's pursuit of a union, a real union with the people that he created. But sin quickly gets in the way of this union, right? And we might think of the very beginning of the Bible storyline with God putting man and woman in the Garden of Eden. 
Sin gets in the way of their union. God expelled the man and the woman from the garden. And remember, he placed, God placed the angel with the sword, preventing the man and the woman from re-entry into the garden, showing this, this division, this separation, this, this severing of this intimate union between God and the people that he created. Then there is the Ark of the Covenant. God is still committed to being with his people in the Old Testament. But sinful people still couldn't get too close to the Ark, could they? And you might think of the two angels of of gold on the cover of the Ark just serving as maybe a warning to people. Don't get too close. You can't get too close to this. can't get too close to God or you might die. Angels. Again, standing as a barrier to this union. And then the ark finally takes residence in the most holy place, either in the tabernacle or God's temple that we read about in in the storyline of the Old Testament. But someone couldn't walk inside this inner room of the temple, could they? Or else they would, this the most holy place, or else they would die. They would be too close to God. His presence would would destroy them. And so there's this curtain that served as a barrier between the people and this inner room of the temple and, and what was embroidered on the curtain, but these two angels. So again, we see angels as a barrier to this union with God. So there's still togetherness with God throughout the Bible, but there's a distance. But then in Revelation 21... What is the angel doing now? Not serving as a barrier anymore. No, he's he's not preventing this union between God and his people. Now he's presenting this union. He's showing this union, this real union that's about to take place. So here's the amazing thing. You might think of the beauty of heaven, and we should think of the beauty of heaven. And we might think, oh, it's... It's got to be the scenery. It's got to be just dazzling. The streets, the gates of heaven. Surely it will be. But that's not the picture that Revelation 21 and 22 are giving us. In the eyes of Christ, what is the beauty of heaven? The beauty of heaven, the eyes of Christ is his dazzling bride, the church coming down so that he can be in union with his people. You, in other words, are what Christ finds so dazzling about this new creation. So what's the prize of heaven? God's prize in heaven is his people. God's prize in heaven is his people. And our prize in heaven, of course, is God. I want you to ask, I want to ask you, does this make you think any differently about yourself? I mean, I, in no way am I suggesting that we, that, that human beings, that, that we are going to be the, the center of heaven. That's reserved for Christ. But I do think that the ending of the story does invite us to see ourselves differently. And I want you to think about the Christians that John is writing to when he's presenting this revelation to them. 
Um, you know, in the middle latter part of the, the very first century, um, and uh, and they're they're suffering, they're suffering Christians. They're they're suffering under Roman emperors, Roman emperors that are flaunting their power and their splendor, threatening Christians to bow down and worship them, or those Christians could lose their lives. And John is suggesting to these Christians that what Christ so awaits in his new creation, what Christ is going to find so beautiful and splendorous is you. Think about these Christians, these oppressed Christians in that first century. And John's saying, oh, it's not the emperor that is brilliant with splendor. It's you. It's you. Christ thinks you are dazzling. So that's you. The dazzling part of this revelation at the end if you trust in Christ and worship him. See, the book of Revelation is meant for you to place yourself into the, the end of the story of the Bible. Um, there, there are lots of graphic images in this book of Revelation, aren't there? Just fantastic images, I mean, strange images of, of beasts, multiple beasts, of plagues, of terrifying woes, this very strange woman, the number 666, all of these these very, very vivid images. And one of the ways that we misread Revelation is if we think all of these symbols only represent specific people or things in the past, so that the book of Revelation primarily speaks to people in the past. That's one way to misread it. Another way to misread it is if we think of these symbols that they only represent specific people or things in the future. And that revelation is, is then this clue book of, of um, you know, sending us on, on, a, on a, a wild guessing game of which historical figures or which nations or countries really these symbols represent. In other words, that revelation primarily is a book for the future. That, that's not primarily what revelation is about. Now, you may have read great books of your own that have identified everything that these different symbols represent in Revelation. Uh, some really good guesses. And you can come after the worship service and tell me those really good guesses, and I'll say, yeah, that sounds pretty neat. But let me tell you that what Revelation is doing is it's... Revelation essentially reveals two ways. The way of God and God's kingdom or a rebellious way, and the kingdom of all of those who rebel against God. And so Revelation provides a vision of great help and encouragement to all of those who worship and who are faithful to the Lord. And it provides a vision of great trouble to those who worship and are faithful really to someone or something else other than the Lord. Revelation is this vision that, oh my gosh, it's relevant to each and every one of us. It invites every one of us to locate, our, locate ourselves at the end of this story 
and ask ourselves, now, who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping the Lord? Or are we really worshiping someone or something else? So Revelation gives us great notice to examine our hearts. Because what we love in our hearts now really matters. It really matters. Human beings are God's highest creation, created in God's very image. He made you so that your actions now, the longings of your heart now, really matter for eternity. In this life, we grow. We want to grow faithfully with with the Lord. And each person is either increasingly becoming a, a person that loves the Lord and who loves the Lord's ways of love and kindness and faithfulness, humility, or is increasingly becoming a person that rejects the Lord's and rejects the Lord's ways, who inwardly more and more is despising the way of life that we're going to find in God's new creation. And so Revelation prompts you to decide, which city am I a citizen of? Am I I going to be a citizen of this this holy city that represents the, the people that will live together with Christ and continue to live out the ways of Christ? Or am I going to be a part of the city of or the society of, of the world, the rebellious, those that are rebellious against the ways of God. Which city do you want to be a part of? Now, unfortunately, people throughout history have thought about heaven, and they thought, eh, <laughs> that just doesn't sound all that compelling to me. And I don't know about you, so let me get to the third promise of the new co- the new cre- new creation it's this in heaven in the new creation we can we can know this will happen humanity and creation flourish now flourishing might not be a word that you first think of when you think about heaven especially if your view of heaven has been mainly a spiritual place that doesn't include anything physical except for maybe a few harps that are being held Or if your vision of heaven is that it will be just one ending uh, church service, like a church service, all sitting nicely, kind of like now, sitting in seats except concentrically around the throne of God forever. See, if that's your vision of heaven, I could see why people might not be all that enthused or excited about that. Will heaven be this eternally long worship service? Well, it depends on what you consider as worship. So Revelation 22, verse 3 says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And that word serve there is one of the Bible's words for worship. In other words, one of the ways that we worship God by serving him. There's enormous worship that will take place in heaven, in other words. But worship doesn't just mean singing. It means serving. We will be doing whatever the Lord gives us to do in heaven. But that is the goal of our lives right now, you could say. Isn't that the goal of our life right now? To 
to serve the Lord by doing what the Lord gives us to do. And yeah, that is, that is the goal of life right now. That we are to serve God now with our lives, with what God gives us to do, whether that be teaching others or designing buildings or roads that don't fall down as people dwell in them or drive on them, or whether that means uh, enhancing the life of others through making music or writing poetry or creating artwork, or whether that means cooking for others or helping others get organized or leading teams of others towards certain goals, just our, the work that we do now. And in this world, to be now present time, to be learning more about God so that as we grow, we can faithfully do the work that God now has called us to do and do that as faithfully as possible. But see, in heaven, there's going to be great, just as there's great continuity with the physical world now and the real renewed physical world of the new creation, there's great continuity between how we serve God now and how we serve God in heaven. So because God is infinite, we can expect that in heaven, we will be always learning more about God. We will be seeing something new about God in heaven. There's there's always going to be growth. God is the infinite being in heaven, not us. So there will always be learning more and seeing new things about God, experiencing new delights in God. There will be new joys to experience in heaven. The glory of God will shine brighter and brighter in us. So remember that that river in, in Revelation 22. It's clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God down the middle of the city, giving life to everything. Well, whenever Jesus talks about rivers of living water, in the scriptures, he refers to his spirit. So Jesus is this refreshing source of life in heaven that we will continually drink from and be refreshed in Christ's presence as we go about our worship, as we go about our, our serving God, doing whatever those tasks are that God gives us to do. And what will those tasks be? Well, let's remember Revelation 22, verse 5. The people of the city, they will be serving God. And chapter five, uh, verse 5 adds a little to that, and they will reign forever and ever. So we will be reigning with Christ, just as Adam and Eve were to serve God in the Garden of Eden, nurturing, nurturing God's creation. So we will have this role of reigning and nurturing God's creation in heaven. So what should we expect about this new creation? We should expect this, that our experience of heaven is not one of boring emptiness, but of serving and reigning in fullness. And that is what I mean by flourishing in heaven. Creation will flourish as we help tend to it. We will flourish as we're fed by the presence of Christ and discovering these new joys 
that we will see in God. So, may I suggest something? That in our present world, I suggest that we see it as getting ready to reign in the new creation, or as many, many other people have have said throughout the decades, uh, we see this life as training for reigning, training for the reigning that we will be doing in God's new creation. That even now we're developing our hearts for serving, as that is what we will be doing in heaven, be serving God, doing the tasks that he gives us to do. And one of the ways that we can prepare ourselves for that is serving now, serving one another well now, because there's this great continuity with the service that we do now in this world and the service that we will be doing in God's new creation. So serve one another now, in hope now. See, another thing that Revelation 21 and 22 encourage us to do is to hope with great hope, with great hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul makes this this statement about gifts that remain. You might remember that. Gifts that remain in the new creation. He says three gifts will remain, faith, hope, and love. How does hope remain in the new creation? I think it's this, our experience of heaven is such that as joyous as it is, there will be even greater joys to come as we experience God's new creation. In other words, our joy is not static. We don't hit the the maximum level of joyfulness. It increases. It increases as we discover new things about God and His new creation that it reveals to us. And so hope with great hope now. C.S. Lewis, um, the very end of his Chronicles of Narnia, he just, I think he puts it so well. Um, how we will experience these new and greater joys on an ongoing fashion in the new creation. And this is what he writes about these characters as they realize that they're now in heaven. He writes, and for us, the readers of the story, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all are lived happily ever after, as they are. But for them, the characters, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And I think Revelation 21 and 22 show us indeed, as we tend to God's new creation, and as we're fed with the stream of the presence of Christ, 
that indeed we'll be experiencing these ever-increasing joys and surprises and delights in the new creation. So that is the real heaven that we will enjoy. The Bible storyline invites us to be people who long now for Christ. So I want you to think about that in your hearts. Do you long now for Christ? And the Bible storyline invites us now to be living in the ways of Christ so that we indeed are training to reign and looking forward to that day when Jesus looks up and sees that beautiful, glorious city, his bride, coming down to be in union with him. Let's pray. Jesus, you indeed are our treasure. You're the treasure of heaven. But we are amazed that this description that John gives us, this revelation, this vision that John has, is that of you waiting for your bride, your dazzling, beautiful bride to come to you. We pray that those moments when we are downtrodden, when we are just making it through the day, that you would refresh us with that vision, that you see us as beautiful and radiant you long to be in union with us just as we long to be in union with you. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with joy, that even this morning as we face different challenges, that we would know that we can look forward to this. This is real. This is not make-believe. This new creation that you have waiting for us. And that we would find a renewed passion for you and serving you and serving others as we indeed faithfully commit ourselves to you in training for the world that is to come for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.